Ah. The average 67, that's not bad. I'm dying. I'm dying. You're not even close. You gotta run these in 58. All 10 in exactly 58. Oh, God, this hurts so bad. Oh, everything hurts. That's what's holding you back. The pain. That's what's holding you back. The pain. Now, as a runner, I can identify with the pain that was displayed there in that film. What the runner was doing was something called high-intensity interval training. It's a great way to get into shape. How it works is a runner will run at about 80 to 90% of their maximum heart rate for a specific amount of time, then they'll have a very short break, and then they'll do it again and again and again and again. And it's a great way to develop endurance. It's a great way to develop muscular development. It, there's actually some research that doing high-intensity interval training is really good for your brain to develop. The reason that more people don't do it is because it hurts. Doing anything at 90% of your maximum heart rate is painful. And oftentimes, we don't like to experience that pain, even if there's a benefit to it. Right? We live in a culture that values ease and comfort and relaxation. We don't value pain and strain. And that actually creates a little bit of a tension for us. Because as followers of Christ, we are told that we are to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Why is that? That's what we're going to look at today. Why are we to rejoice in the midst of suffering? And then how do we even go about doing that? So we're in this series called At the Cross, and we've been looking at how the cross changes our relationship with God. It changes how we see ourselves. And at the cross, we saw two weekends ago that we can experience freedom, real honest freedom that comes from what Christ has done on our behalf. And then last weekend, we saw that at the cross, we can experience forgiveness. And that we can come to the foot of the cross and we can, we can leave our guilt and our shame and we can, we can leave it there at the cross. This weekend, we're going to see that we can receive something from the cross. And that thing that we receive is exactly what we need to be able to get through seasons of suffering in our life. So to look at that, we're gonna check out a passage of scripture from the Apostle Paul. It's found in Romans chapter five. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn them on or turn them open to Romans chapter five, and we're gonna begin in verse one. All of the verses up here on the screen on the TV as well. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's kind of a nice summary of where we've been the last couple of weeks in our series, that we've been justified through faith and our hope is now wrapped up into who Christ Jesus is. Then Paul goes on in verse three to say this. He says, not only so, but we also glory, and some of your translations may say the word rejoice, glory or rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And verse three just kind of stands out, doesn't it? That we're supposed to glory or rejoice in our sufferings. I don't know about you, but when I go through seasons of suffering, I don't want to rejoice. That's not my first inclination. That's not what I'm drawn toward. You know, suffering is something that just all of us face. It's just part of the human condition. In fact, as I was preparing for this message, I was thinking about all the different and various ways that we all experience suffering. Some of you here today may be experiencing financial suffering. 
maybe it had nothing to do with you or any of the choices you make. Maybe it had everything to do with the choices that you made, but either way, you are in it financially and it's painful right now. Or, or maybe you're experiencing relational suffering. There's a, a family member or a close friend that, that that relationship is just so tense and so fractured. Maybe it's a marriage and, and you and your spouse are, are just at each other and there's suffering. Maybe that marriage has ended and you're going through the suffering of divorce. Maybe it's the suffering that comes from a child who has drifted away from you or your family or the fact that you are desperate for a child and you haven't been able to have one and there's just a level of suffering that that produces. Maybe it's physical. Maybe you're experiencing some pain, you have illness or disease. Maybe a loved one has passed away and you're suffering their loss, or maybe you're facing death, and that produces an enormous amount of suffering. And then there's some other ways that we suffer. Sometimes it's we suffer because of our faith. Maybe you're suffering right now because some friends of yours at school have kind of disowned you. They've they put some distance between you and, and them because of your commitment to Christ. And you're so focused on, on your faith in Jesus, and they just think that you're kind of weird now, and they don't want anything to do with you. Or maybe that happened to you at work. Maybe you got missed over for a promotion, or you've been even let go for a job because of your unwillingness to deviate from what God has called you to do or who he's called you to be. I think as followers of Christ, we're actually more prone to suffering than other people. And the reason I think that is because Jesus tells us that we're supposed to go into places where suffering is significant and provide hope and peace. Right, we're supposed to go into places where there is injustice. We're supposed to run into places where there is poverty, where there are people who are, are facing oppression. And so when we do that, we're just kind of more aware of the suffering that's existing in our world. And I think that when we bump into suffering, we're more aware of the fact that this was not how God intended it to be. Right, we, we know that. We, we know from, from God's word that this was not his plan. This was not his design. Suffering was not part of how he wanted things to be set up, that, that's actually kind of our fault. Not, not kind of, it is. The last, earlier this series and in the last series, we, we went back to the Garden of Eden and we talked about the significance in that garden when we as humanity basically looked at God and said, you know what, we're good. Like, we're gonna do this on our own. We'd rather be our own God. We're gonna try this our own way. And when we stepped out of what his plan was, we stepped into a world that then invited in sin and suffering, and we have been dealing with the consequences of it ever since. And so when we're in the midst of suffering, we're reminded about how painful, about how unfair, about how unjust that suffering is. And I tell you what, it doesn't feel in those moments like something that's worth rejoicing in. And I think that when we're suffering, those words that the Apostle Paul writes can almost feel offensive, can't they? Like, rejoice in this? Why? And to help answer that question, there are two misconceptions that we just need to clarify about what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying in this passage. So the first misconception is this. We are not called to rejoice in spite of our suffering. Don't rejoice in spite of suffering. Meaning, don't rejoice as if your suffering doesn't matter. Right? Don't try to separate how, what you're experiencing from the sense that you're rejoicing. Don't, 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 you know, I'm not called to grin and bear it. You know, nowhere in scripture does God say, listen, you know, just pretend like it doesn't affect you. Just you know, get out there and put a smile on. And when somebody's like, how you doing? Just be like, I am blessed. That's what's, you know. No, like we're supposed to be honest, transparent and authentic about the fact that we are suffering. It's real, it hurts. And we need to be honest about that. And we need no better example than Jesus himself to understand that. Jesus suffered significantly. 
And at the cross, we see that Jesus suffered significantly. And in the moments leading up to Jesus going to the cross, he's about to be betrayed and then arrested and then face crucifixion. Jesus knows what's coming. And Matthew records for us how Jesus was dealing with his suffering. It's, it's found in Matthew 26. Let me share this passage with you. Starting in verse 36, Matthew records, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And I love this passage of scripture. And I love it because it reveals to us the fact that what Jesus went through was real and it was painful, that he truly, truly suffered. And the reason that's an encouragement to me is that when I'm suffering, I know that when I reach out to Jesus, he understands. He knows what it's like to go through seasons of suffering. In fact, Jesus experienced great suffering all throughout his earthly life. Think about all the different ways that Jesus suffered. He was born into poverty. His family was very poor. And then shortly after his birth, they become refugees. They have to flee to Egypt to get away from Herod, who's trying to kill him. And then all throughout Jesus' ministry, it is filled with people who misunderstand Jesus, who are trying to misattribute things to Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to use him for their own political gain or for their own good. And then Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest followers and friends. And at the cross, we see just how significantly Jesus, who is God, suffered. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion and every other major philosophy because it's only in Jesus do we see the fact that God himself took upon our own suffering, right? It's at the cross that we see Jesus suffer great injustice. He died a death he did not deserve to die. He died our death. That was ours to die. We're the one who should have received that punishment. But Jesus took it upon himself. And it's at the cross that we see God the Father knowing what it's like to lose a son, to lose a child. And it's at the cross that we see Jesus endure incredible amounts of physical pain. But even more so, even more so, Jesus experienced suffering. Because at the end, near the end, right, those final moments on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing a level of, of cosmic separation from God because of the consequence of our sin. And Jesus took that upon himself. He knows what it's like to suffer. And he suffered because he loves us and wants us to be able to be back in a relationship with him. But Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And so because of that, we can look to his example about how to deal with suffering. And Jesus was honest, brutally honest about his suffering. He said to Peter that my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. He was honest about it. He cried out to God in pain about his suffering. And I wonder what kind of a difference and an impact this must have made on Peter. I mean, to, to sit there and to watch Jesus suffer in that way and to realize later, Peter didn't get it in the moment. He's about ready to deny Jesus. But later, for Peter to look back on that experience and think, oh my goodness, he did that for me. He did that for us. And I wonder if that helped to give Peter some motivation to get through his own suffering that he would later face for his faith. You know, I think 
when, when we're honest and authentic about our suffering, not trying to sugarcoat it, not trying to pretend or, or, or rejoice in spite of our suffering, I think it can be a great witness for us. And we talk here at the church about Adopt Seven, the idea that, that each of us can be on mission by having seven people in our life that we just wanna share the hope of Jesus with. You, you know, one of the ways that you can be a great witness to those seven people is to just be honest and authentic about the fact that you're suffering, when you're suffering, just to be real. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't try to make Christianity all dressed up. Just be real about it. They may not get it in the moment, but it provides a great witness that this is real and that God's real and his love for us is real. So we're not to rejoice in spite of our suffering. The second thing is that we're not supposed to rejoice for our suffering. Now hang with me here on this. Don't rejoice for suffering, as in we rejoice for the fact that we're suffering. Right? We, we don't rejoice for the fact that, that it hurts because it hurts. That's not why we're supposed to rejoice. This is not a badge for us to wear. We don't get extra credit for going through suffering. This isn't something that, that we become more holy or more spiritual or God's love for us somehow increases because we're suffering. The reason that we are to rejoice is not for the suffering, but because of what the suffering produces within us. And, and I was reminded of that truth this last summer. I was over in Southeast Asia visiting some of our global partners and I was sitting on the floor across from a gentleman whose name was Vang. And Vang is a church planter. Now, don't think about church planting like we think here in this country or in the Western world. He's basically a, a, a farmer, if you can call it that, and he's committed to sharing the hope of Jesus within his village and, and he's sold out to doing this. And so Vang is telling me his story. He's 30 years old and he has four children. And Vang lives in indescribable poverty. I mean, just there's no government assistance. There's no help. Even if there was, he wouldn't receive any because his government is against him. In fact, they have taken his home away from him because of his commitment to Jesus Christ. I mean, this guy's going through it. And so as we're having this conversation through the interpreter, I asked, how can I pray for you? What would your prayer request be if that was your situation? Four kids, you know, no income, no resources, and the government is persecuting you for your faith. Here was his prayer request. He said, would you pray that I would have access to, not own, mind you, but access to transportation so I can get to the village that's just a little too far away for me to walk because in that village, no one there has yet heard about Jesus and I wanna go tell him. That was his prayer request. And then he looks at me and through the interpreter asks, how can I pray for you? And how can I pray for your church? Woodale, he asked how he could pray for us in the midst of his persecution and in the midst of his suffering. And I, I shouldn't have been, but I was totally caught off guard. And I, I kind of stammered around a little bit. And I, you know, literally everything that came to my mind was like, that, that's a first world problem. That's a first world problem. That's a first world problem. And I just came up with something that was just really generic and unspecific. I don't even know what I said. But I was thinking back to that conversation this week as I was preparing for this message. I know what I should have asked for. I know what the prayer request should have been. I should have said, Vang, would, pray that I would have and pray that we at Wooddale would experience the hope that you have. Because see, I think Vang has a different level, a deeper level of hope than I do. And it's a hope that was born out of his suffering because that's what suffering does. It produces within us hope. 
And that's why we rejoice. We, we don't rejoice in spite of our suffering as if it doesn't affect us. We don't rejoice for our suffering. We are to rejoice in suffering because of what it produces within us. And what it produces is that hope. That's what the apostle Paul wrote about in Romans 5. Look again at the passage. Not only so, but we also glory or rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Suffering produces hope. That's what suffering does. That's what suffering did in Vang's life. He had a hope. He had a hope that the future was gonna be better than now. And that compelled him to change his perspective about what was going on in his world. For, for Vang, that sense of hope kind of became for him like a finish line. Can you imagine what it would be like to run a race that had no finish line? Do you know how awful of an experience that would be? The reason runners are able to go and expend so much effort on the course is they know at some point it's over. There's a finish line, I'm gonna be done. But if you were to run without any sort of a finish line, that would just be dreadful. First marathon I ever ran was Grandma's Marathon up in Duluth. And the end of that race, the last mile, kind of weaves itself through the downtown Duluth. And you can hear the finish line, you just can't see the finish line. And so literally every, every corner, every block I turned and go down the next street, I thought, here's the finish line, and there it wasn't. And I'd go around the next corner, and here it is, and there it wasn't. And the next corner, here it is, and there it was. At some point, I thought, this is a bad joke. Like, is there not a finish line to this race? The finish line lets us leave it all out on the course because we know that at some point it's gonna be over. So what's our finish line? How is hope like our finish line? The hope that Vang had and the hope that you and I can have, the hope that grows within us throughout suffering is the hope that Peter wrote about. And I have to think that when Peter penned this letter that was sent out to churches who were suffering persecution, I think he had to go back to that moment in the garden and he had to be reminded about Jesus. Here's what Peter writes about that hope. First Peter one, he says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth, here it is, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Our hope is all wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Our hope is that because Jesus rose from the dead, if we are found in him, the promise that he gives to us is so will we, that we too will rise again from the dead. So our hope is resurrection, not replacement. Hear that, our hope is resurrection, not replacement. The hope is that, that God is going to resurrect our bodies. Somehow he's gonna take, even though they decay in the grave, he's gonna, he's gonna resurrect us through his spirit. And what we're going to receive is a glorified body, a perfected body, the way he always intended it to be, free from suffering, done with the illness, done with the aging. That somehow he's going to resurrect this earth and it's gonna be a new earth, a glorified earth, a perfected earth, the way it always intended to be. His plan is resurrection, not replacement. It's not like God just takes our spirit and then throws us up in the clouds and then somehow that becomes compensation for our suffering. That's not it. It's that God takes everything that's been broken and suffered in this world and he resurrects it. He makes it better. And that should give us hope because it means that our suffering was worth it. It has a purpose, it's not meaningless. That somehow in his mercy, God is gonna take all of that suffering and make something better and 
glorified out of it. And for us, that's our hope. That that's what we have to look forward to. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof that that's what's coming. And so Peter goes on to talk about how then suffering helps us to focus in on that very hope. So he continues in, in verse six to say this. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. We now understand why. Though you for a little while may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What Peter says is that suffering works in our life in the same way that gold is refined. This is refined gold, you heat it up, and as it's heated up, the impurities in the metal come out and they're scraped away, and what you have left with is just pure gold. And Peter is saying in the same way, that's what suffering does in our lives. That suffering strips away from us everything that is a false hope. It strips away the false hope of, of money. It strips away the false hope of influence, of significance through our careers. It strips away certain relationships that we're attached to. It strips away things. It strips all of that away and it leaves us with the hope of Jesus, that glorious hope that we are moving toward. That is why we rejoice in suffering. It's because it builds and produces within us hope. So that's why we rejoice in suffering. So how do we actually do this? So I have two thoughts for you. One is that in order to rejoice in suffering, we need to stay fueled. Now, when a runner is going to go out and run a course, they're going to go out and run a race, they make sure that they're fueled properly before they go and do that. They make sure they have calories in uh, to head out. That's one of the reasons that marathon runners will often do carb loading. They'll have a big pasta dinner or something the night or the few nights before a big race because they need that energy within them. In the same way for us, spiritually speaking, our energy is God's word. We need to stay fueled by focusing on God's word and on, on our personal prayer life with him that we have to be with him, we have to be paying attention to his word, that that has to get into us so that we have what we need to get through those trials that are going to come. They're going to come. So we need to be fueled for when they do, not if they do, but when they do. And, and that fuel for us, that, that the constant staying in God's word and, and personal prayer, it's additive, meaning it's something that we have to do even before we go through suffering. Don't wait for suffering to open up God's word or to start praying. Right? You don't see marathon runners the first, first mile of the race with a bowl of pasta, right? Trying to eat and run. They, they do all that beforehand. The same should be for us. That's one of the reasons we encourage you to be reading God's word on a daily basis. It's not to score points with God. It's to get in you what you need, the truth of who God is, his character and nature to help you get through those seasons of suffering that you're gonna face. So stay, stay fueled. The second way that we rejoice in suffering is to stay focused. And we need to stay focused on the finish and not on how we are feeling. Stay focused on the finish, not how we're feeling. My freshman year of high school, I went out for the cross country team. And that first race that I ran actually went a lot better than I think than I had anticipated it going and I think that my coaches thought I was gonna do. But toward the end of that first race, I, I stepped right near the finish awkwardly into a ditch, a little, little hole uh, on the side of the course, and I hurt my hip muscle. And so I spent the next week or week and a half uh, not able to train, but just kind of waiting for my hip to recover. And so going into the second race, I was undertrained and yet overconfident, 
That's a bad combination for a runner. And so we lined up for the second race. The gun went off and so did I. And I went out so hard and so fast. And I tell you what, going into that first mile, I was in pain. I was hurting and I started to focus about how I was feeling and how much pain I was in. And I started projecting that through the rest of the race. And I did something shortly after the first mile that to this day, I regret. I dropped out of that race. I stopped running and I just stepped off the course into the crowd. And then I walked back to our camp. My coach ran into me a few minutes later and he saw me. He assumed that the reason I had dropped out of the race was because my hip was hurting. And that was an assumption I never bothered correcting, but I knew the truth, right? The truth was I just, I just quit. I just gave up. Later that day, we're sitting in camp and their clipboard was sitting nearby. We're waiting for the bus. And I kind of looked over at the clipboard. It was my coach's clipboard. And on the clipboard had a list of all the names of each one of the teammates. And next to their name was a number. It was the time in which they had completed the course, except for my name. Next to my name, there was no number, but there were three simple letters, D N F. And I stood there and I looked at those three letters. I thought, D and F, what does D and F mean? And then it hit me, did not finish. And the feeling in the, my gut, when I recognized that that did not finish label was attached to my name, was 10 times worse than the feeling that I had experienced when I was out on the course earlier that day. In fact, in that moment, I think I would have done anything to get back out there and to rerun that race, to to just erase that label from being attached to my name. The reason that I did not finish was because I was focused on my feelings and not on the finish. When we're in the midst of suffering, we must stay focused on our finish. That's exactly what Jesus did in the midst of his suffering. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12 about the focus that Jesus had. Listen to this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And I love when the passage says, for the joy set before him. What was that joy that was set before Jesus? Jesus is God. In eternity past, before he he humbled himself and came to this earth to die our death, Jesus was in in, in a perfect relationship with God the Father. What more could he possibly have wanted or needed? What could the joy have been that would have been set before Jesus that he didn't already have? What was that joy? What was the joy set before Christ that allowed him to endure the suffering of the cross? The joy was you. The joy was me. It was so that through his suffering, we would be able to be in a reconciled relationship with God. That was his joy. And because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for us. And if we stay focused on the finish, which is him, if we stay focused on him in the midst of our suffering, then we will be able to endure the suffering that we are going through. 
Now, let me just say this about this this message. This is not a message of spiritual self-help, right? This is not like a motivation, like, hey, grab your shoes and lace them up and get out there and just try to be strong in your suffering and work harder and stay more focused and pray more and you'll get through. That's not what this is. Because the reality is, and you know this and I know this, the reality is we don't have what it takes to finish the course. We don't. We don't have enough endurance. We can't make it on our own. We're not gonna get there. And that's the point of the cross. At the cross, we come to Jesus and we acknowledge that. We say, Christ, I am helpless to do this on my own. I'm helpless. I'm helpless to run the race that you have for me. And so I'm hanging it up. I'm giving you my work. I'm giving you my effort. I'm giving you my labor. And what we receive from Jesus is we receive not ours, but his endurance. And we receive the endurance that Jesus won for us on the cross. And it is given to us through his Holy Spirit. And that's the beauty of what we receive at the cross. And when we receive that endurance through his spirit, it gives us what we need to get through the seasons of suffering that you and I are facing. So I wanna give you an opportunity to tangibly respond to this message, to to do that, to, to have a moment where you can receive that endurance for the season of suffering that you may be going through right now. So I wanna ask you to do this. I wanna ask you to just take your, take your hands, make a fist and just set them in your lap. The reason I'm asking you to do that is that toward the end of a race, especially when runners are, are striving for that finish line, they have a, ten, a tendency to, to, to tighten up their fists. And when they do, the, the running posture, which was kind of you know, down here, all of a sudden everything gets tight. And as they tighten their fist, everything just kind of starts coming up and, and everything else gets tight and they, they bring their arms up and their shoulders start to get sore and their posture changes, their, their cadence gets all messed up and, and, and they just lose the pace and it's, everything's inefficient. And what you teach runners to do is when that happens, it's a really simple secret to fix it. You just open up your hands. You open up your hands and everything relaxes again and you're able to return to that pace and that cadence. And I wanna invite us in these next moments to do just that, to have our hands tightly clenched. I mean, just recognizing, identifying the pain that we're going through and being real and being honest with God about it, just like Jesus was. And then to open up our hands and to receive from Christ the endurance that he has won for you and wants to give to you so that you can finish the race that he is calling you to run. You join with me in prayer. Father God, as we sit here with our hands clenched, Lord, we come to the recognition that that our suffering is painful. Lord, you know that because you experienced it too. And Lord, that gives us encouragement that you know what it feels like to go through this. And Father, in the midst of this, we, we, we acknowledge our helplessness to go through this course on our own. Father, we admit that we can't do it, but Lord, you can. Father, that you are able when we are not. And so, Father, it's in your ability that we then open up our hands. And Lord, in in those hands that are extended, we receive from you the endurance that you wanna give to us through your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that in these moments, as we we hear this song, Lord, that individually, Lord, as, as you speak to us, that we would just come to that spot of opening up our hands and receiving that endurance. 
And Father, that then we would stand and, and respond in unison, Lord, to this declaration of our inability, but of your supreme ability. And Father, may the encouragement of the fact that you are able give to us the endurance that we need to get through the season of suffering that we are in. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray, amen.